Hafsa Amini was arrested September 13th by Iran's morality police. Her alleged crime? Not properly covering her hair, something required by Iran's strict laws that govern the way women are supposed to dress and supposed to behave in public. Women have risked their lives to burn their headscarves in defiance of Iran's religious laws and morality police. Women in Iran take to the streets. Astonishing images have emerged from across Iran. Women burning their headscarves, cutting off their hair, and marching in the thousands, chanting death to the dictator. All to protest the regime's hijab requirement for women. Schoolgirls rebelling too. But it's not without consequences. Dozens of deaths, hundreds of arrests. In response to the protest and widespread images being shared of women removing and burning their hijabs, headscarves, Iran's government has blocked internet access and social media platforms across the country. Last night, the university came under siege. The, uh, the security forces uh, attacked the students. They went in, they attacked the dormitory. Uh, we were receiving uh, reports from students there who were hiding in the dorms and all the windows were, in, were being broken. Uh, reportedly, over 100 students were arrested last night. Many students didn't go back to dorms because they were scared. Kia ora, I'm Sarah Robson, and today on The Detail, for decades, women in Iran have faced strict restrictions and policing of what they wear, where they go, who they're with. But that hasn't always been the case. So what happened? And will this uprising actually force the regime to change? This is a sign that the civil society of Iran is still very well alive and active regardless of all the oppressions of the regime for the last 40 years. Nagar Pato is a senior lecturer in security studies at Massey University in Wellington. She grew up in Iran and has been watching the growing protest movement closely. I think civil society of Iran has a strategy and it is like dealing with a very, very comprehensive, suppressive system that has all the guns and military facilities in addition with money from oil. So it is it is a very well-oiled oppressive machine and they have to be able to fight it with empty hands. So this means that you have to develop a very, very complicated strategies in civil society to have a non-violent civil society movement that has been successful. The uniqueness of this one is that this is a particularly a woman uprising and it is led by women and as the result of gender-based violence. How, how big are the protests and how do they compare to other movements in Iran in recent years? So in 2009, when the results of the election caused a huge uprising in Iran. We want freedom! We want freedom! This is a country which, according to the government, just overwhelmingly re-elected its president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. But in the capital, Tehran, thousands of protesters differed vehemently. 
people came with huge number, millions of people came in the streets and started demonstrating. This time, it is more sporadic. Now, what this shows is that in those kind of totalitarian regimes, as totalitarian regimes define and try to find new instruments to oppress their civil society, civil society also develops new strategies to, to, to face the oppression. So, for example, this time, it seems to me that civil society of Iran is doing very sporadic work. So they come out um, at night in their house and they, they scream slogans against the regime. Then they do sporadic gathering in different squares. Women are leading, marching, and taking beatings for one another. This is the first time that women in a large number standing shoulder to shoulder with men burning their headscarves. It's the main pillar of the Islamic Republic. So they strongly believe that by burning headscarves, they are actually shaking the regime. But they, this time they haven't done any massive um, demonstration. And I believe that's the lesson they learned. Let's take a short jump back in history to see what things were like before the 1979 revolution. In the 1960s, women in Iran dressed in hijab and the latest Western fashions. But soon after the 1979 revolution, the new Islamic regime ruled that women and girls from a young age had to cover their hair and bodies in public. Hardliners proclaimed hijab would protect women's honor. But for many protesters, it's become a symbol of oppression. Hijab in Iran is not only a one rule that is imposed. It's actually one of the constitutive laws or idealistic laws of the Islamic Republic. So when 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 the revolution was taking shape, there were many women who participated in revolution. During under the Pahlavi regime, women gained quite a lot of social freedom and they could educate and they had equal rights. I mean there were many, many progressive steps were taken. You heard Nagar there refer to the Pahlavi regime which ruled the country under the Shah from 1925 up until the revolution. But often these steps were top-down and often gained, secular women gained more power under it, but it it was to a degree excluding religious women out of discussions. Now, after the revolution, because of the name revolution, the whole system became upside down. The departure of the Shah has caused celebrations here in the capital, but it does not mean an end to the political unrest in Iran. The Ayatollah Khomeini has become the high priest of Iran. He and other religious leaders, the mullahs, interpret the Koran and its laws. Political leaders, including interim Prime Minister Barzagan, enforce them. So all the legal advantages that women gained during the 1960s and 1950s, they lost overnight. So at the beginning of revolution, it was about equality and it was about uh, gender equality. But as soon as the revolution succeeded, women lost all their rights. So they lost the rights of custody over their children. They lost the right of studying in many cases. And then they, they put a constitutional law to say that hijab is the idealistic symbol of the revolution. And it has to become a constitutional law. So it's not only dedicated or it's, it's important for Muslim women 
or it's, is enforced on Muslim women, but it is comprehensive. So you're Christians, you're atheists, you're Baha'i, you're, you have whatever religion you have in Iran, you, you have to wear hijab. But because Iranian women didn't conform to this practice of wearing hijab and constantly refused and resisted, this became a source of not only an ideologistic kind of position for the Islamic Republic, but actually a source of fake economy. This is where the morality police come in. Islamic Republic of Iran developed three forms of security forces. So there are security forces who are called volunteer forces or Basij, but they are not really voluntarily. They're getting paid by by the the leadership and the government. And they're specifically designed to do moral policing of women, whether they conform to their hijab or they they fight against it. And then there is a revolutionary guards who are, well, hijab is one of the ideals of the revolution. So they have to protect the hijabs. So they, they, that becomes part of their responsibility. And of course, the police in Iran becomes responsible because it's a constitutional law. So violating hijab regulations is a criminal activity. So there are three layers of oppression. So every time that woman refused to wear hijab, it became more oppressive. They have tried many different things, but, well, there are many people who choose not to wear hijab. That resistance began in the earliest days after the revolution. Nagar Pato was a child at the time. For people like me, for example, who was brought up in non-religious families who didn't have a a particular religious affiliation, the previous generations, like my mother and my auntie, continued to live a very secular life privately. Um, They would sometimes put up a fashion show for us to show how did they walk before the revolution. And in a way, they continued to resist privately and pass those values of democracy and gender equality to their next generation. Even from very early, very early days of the revolution, they were a distinctive picture of women who truly adhered to the ideals of revolution. And they wore, they they chose to wear hijab and those who had to conform. And, and, and you could see the difference between them because, um, Woman wanted to make sure that the resistance is obvious. But all of a sudden, from a colorful world, women were allowed to only wear four colors. And we were strictly monitored. Our previous generation were monitored. Many of them went out of job and employment due to a process that the Islamic Republic called the purification of government agencies and government departments. So they went through this process and they lost their jobs. Many of them migrated to different parts of the world um, and they became actually very successful in their careers um, outside. Many of them convinced their husbands to move as a family. Many of them moved because of their their kids. So a lot of time they moved or they kept resisting privately. And every opportunity that they gained in order to come out and talk about their, their problems, they did. But I still believe that the lack of strong determination from men in Iran during 1980s and 1990s to change and to see the oppression contributed to the continuation of the oppression. Women are subject to policing of other aspects of their lives too. 
if there is a girl and a boy walking in the street, they can stop them and ask them what relationship they have with each other. Any form of relationship can result in serious consequences. They are monitored often by uh, governments and regulations in the workplace to see whether they are conformist. About 70% of Iranian women are educated and then go to tertiary education. But still the, the issue of employment is, is a problem. Inheritance is another issue. Women always get half of men and their inheritance. Um, there are some restrictions in the studying in universities is still for women. So it is not an, and often battles of custodies can be very, very problematic. Women also cannot leave the country without the permission of their husbands or their father, or um, even there is no male relative around. They need to have a permission from a, a gentleman in a notary office to be able to get a passport and leave Iran. So there is, it's not easy that there is a huge amount of restrictions. Was it inevitable that the regime in Iran would, would go down this path? Pre-revolution, Iran was a fairly liberal society. So how has it reached this point? And is it, is it simply about the regime trying to solidify its position and exert control over the population? So the control of, of sex and sexuality in, in spaces, in public spaces, is very important for religious forces, particularly for the Islamists who developed the Islamic Republic of Iran. Because through the control of sex and sexuality, you can control species. And that that's that's a very important factor. You can you don't need to have control over education system or the legal system. You can have control over sexuality and sex, really, and controlling women. So that's part of it. But it also shows that the modernization and the secularization that the Shah's regime was following in the 1950s and 60s didn't really have that much of a social support. Because when these regulations were passing after the revolution, there were not many oppositions from men um, in politics or in any official positions against these. So when women, for example, uprose and has and came to streets on 1980 to, to oppose the compulsory hijab and the constitutional obligation of wearing hijab. They completely ignore it and men didn't, Iranian men didn't extensively support them either. Now what is interesting with now is that the young generation of Iranian men seems to have a much more liberal mind about this. So this time, to me, it seems that they have the support of the younger generation of men. They do have a very good understanding about how unity between different groups and whether they are as Muslims or they are non-Muslims or whether but they practice or not can help each other to achieve equality. You see voluntarily veiled people, women, and involuntarily veiled women. So they want to have the choice whether to wear or not to wear the hijab. Absolutely. So it's about uh, essentially women feeling humiliated and women feeling forced to do something that they may or may not want to do. And I think that this is, this is another step um, for the future of Iran, which I, I strongly believe is will be built by, by women.
the momentum of these protests is still getting larger. Why is it that, with I mean, over 100 people killed, people are just not seemingly scared. They carry on protesting. Because they are fed up. They just don't see... There, there's no hope for the current young generation, school students, university students. They just don't see any hope for their future. Iran has been in a deadlock. Their nuclear talks ha have failed. They don't have any social freedom. They don't have any economic prosperity. And they feel that this is the only way to, to continue. Otherwise, there is no livelihood left. They are fed up. The Supreme Leader clearly feels threatened by it. That's why today he said, yes, he's saddened by the death of Masa Amini, but he called the protesters rioters. And he said that they will, they will be treated accordingly. But many of these protesters say that, no, we are here for a reason and we're not going home. This is a brilliant opportunity for oppositional groups to sit together and have a vision about how Iranians, regardless of their religious affiliation and regardless of their religiosity, in fact, how they can live together in peace and how they can have a reconciliation system and a democratic state that can include everyone and, pro and everyone can prosper in it. I have not seen such an attempt, and I'm really hoping that this is started, but this starts somewhere, but I'm, I haven't seen any attempt for a, a unified vision, and I think that's one of the major challenges. Now, the other challenge is that due to some international events that might not seem relevant at all, including, for example, Russia's attack of Ukraine, Iranian regime has some kind of unprecedented opportunities that it didn't have. Iran is an exporter of natural gas. Europe is in desperate need of natural gas at the moment. There is a quite a lot of opportunity for Iranian regime to negotiate with its Western partners. And that means that it's it's very difficult to expect a lot of pressures from individual countries on Iran. Now, the third issue, which I think it's it's also a, a problem, it's often revolutions are very, it's not very difficult to do. It's the problem of how you do a post-revolutionary system. And that post-revolutionary system requires quite a lot of stability and even economic functions. Now, the opportunities is that United Nations is, is pressing Iran for better human rights and for addressing this particular event, which I think is a very important part. And I think even in, in New Zealand, countries like us, what we can do is to convince UN to push Iran for this and to push Iran for actually addressing the issues of gender equalities. And the, the, the next part is that contrary to 1980s and 1990s and 2000s even, now these events cannot be quiet and silenced. All of a sudden, it's not only about the media and the national media platform, but also about civil societies, about individuals who get engaged, and these things matters for them. Because we live in the world that a lot of connections happen are based on values rather than geographical borders. So it's not only, for example, a matter for Iranians, but many in the world who feel for oppression and they want to fight for justice and equality, they actually feel sympathizing for Iranians. And that, to me, is another strength that Iranians have 
in raising awareness about the problems in Iran and actually hoping for a better system. Protests were being held in more than 150 cities, from Tokyo to San Francisco. Violent protests in Iran, including solidarity protests across the globe and also here in Aotearoa. Iranian-born Green Party MP Golriz Gaharaman. It's absolutely terrifying. It's exhilarating for all Iranians, I think, and and probably for, for most women across the world. One of the rallies was also in the Italian capital, Rome. With this regime, it's not possible to receive human rights, that's all. Now is the time for all of us to think that we have the ability to change this 43-year-long oppression. The solution ultimately has to come outside Iran and the reformists and many of the politicians inside Iran who could potentially navigate a way between these extremes and create a reconciliation pattern because I think Iranians need a reconciliation process. That's it for today. I'm Sarah Robson. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Bonnie Harrison and Alexia Russell. And thanks to Nagar Pato. Matewa. Wa.